0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, with a message entitled, The First Christian Sermon, Part 1. So turn in your Bibles to Acts, Chapter 2, verses 14 to 24, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: Throughout my lifetime, I've heard a great many sermons, and, well, I've preached a few myself. And in some circles, a sermon is a negative thing. I mean, someone's going to say, I don't need a sermon when, you know, when they're trying to deflect someone who's lecturing them on something. Or we might even hear it more directly. You know, don't you go and preach to me. And then, of course, there's the more gentle rebuke when someone's going to say, it just sounds too preachy. It makes it sound like if you're going to communicate well, you're going to have to get less preachy, less like a sermon. You see, people don't like sermons. All that to say that preaching often gets a bad rap, and since I've been a pastor and a preacher for many years, I've I've heard all the jokes, like the one about the preacher and the bus driver who both went to heaven, and the bus driver got a mansion, and the preacher got, you know, just regular row housing in heaven, and when the preacher wanted to know why that was, he was told, well, you know, when that bus driver drove, he drove like a madman, and men and women prayed, and when you preached, men and women just slept. Yeah, yeah. The joke's about droning on and on. Well, in response to that which is the complaint from many, that sermons have a tendency to be long and boring and perhaps even irrelevant, let me offer a response. I think it's no exaggeration to say that the history of the Christian faith and the history of preaching are fairly close to the history of the same thing. David Larson, in his very excellent book called The Company of the Preachers, makes the point that whenever anything other than preaching was central in the focus of the worship of the church, the church was always in decline. And he gives evidence for that. He points out that in the Middle Ages, for instance, when liturgy took a greater place than preaching, we not only saw a severe decline in the church, but also a decline of truth and of faith and about what it means to know God. See, what is often forgotten is, you know, the way that professors teach in church history classes. It's often taught in terms of, you know, great historical theological controversies and Larger than life personalities and then good and bad decisions along with wars and great political upheavals. But a close analysis of the great figures of the church and what they stressed is very telling. St. Augustine, long considered the greatest theologian for a thousand years, he stressed that he thought his work in the pulpit was the most important work he had ever accomplished. The great reformers of the church in the 16th century, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, they would have agreed. These men were first and foremost pastors and preachers. They were working pastors who delivered not just one but many sermons every single week. See, the fact is, Christianity is a religion of the Word. God spoke a Word and the world came to be. Jesus is the Word made flesh. The Bible is the written Word of God. And the sermon is the Word declared in every culture among every people group so that men and women come to believe. In fact, there are within the 28 chapters that make up the book of Acts, at the very least, depending on how you count, there are at the very least 11 recorded sermons. I personally put that number at 15. That's how it goes. There is action and then there's preaching. That's pretty much a summary of the book of Acts. Lots and lots of preachers and sermons and responses. And can I add a comment about all those jokes about long and boring sermons? You see, it is true that a great many Christians have had to endure, well, let me say it, less than inspiring and less than life-altering sermons. And it's also true that there have been a great many misinformed sermons in countless pulpits where, you know, one only had wished that the preacher had spent more time in the Bible and less time in other things. But while there are countless deficiencies in all preaching, let me set the record straight. 1 Corinthians one twenty one says, "'For since in the wisdom of God, "'the world did not know God through wisdom, "'it pleased God through the folly of what we preach "'to save those who believe.'" Yeah, preaching is a kind of folly, but then again, you know, I can't tell you how many times someone's gonna tell me of a sermon that I preached, and it's a sermon that I can't even remember myself. Or a sermon that I delivered, which, you know, I thought I'd really blown it, but it was that very sermon that they surrendered their lives to Jesus as Savior and the Lord. And I respond, what folly. And so should it surprise us then that after the Holy Spirit fell on the first ever group of New Testament believers, baptizing them in the power of Jesus Christ, that the very first thing they did was to preach a sermon. Acts 2, 14 to 47 records for us the first ever Christian sermon, and that sermon follows hard on the heels of the filling or the baptism of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Today, I'm going to cover a first part of that sermon. Let's remember that the newly baptized in the Holy Spirit believers are speaking in languages that they've never learned, and people are giving various reactions, and now Peter stands up to speak. I'm reading verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So we have to imagine that, you know, amidst what by now was a considerable bit of confusion, that Peter has found a place to stand where he can be seen by a large crowd. And our text says that he's standing there alongside of the other eleven. So from the very beginning of the Christian movement, there can be no doubt that Peter has become the leader. And at least here in Jerusalem and in the first era of the church, his leadership remains unchallenged. When he speaks, he seems to be speaking for the all the twelve. And so if there is to be a first-ever Christian sermon, there is no doubt as to who will give it. Peter will. And then Peter begins his sermon. Men of Judea, he starts, and all who live in Jerusalem— And you'll also notice as the sermon goes on, he widens the net down to verse 22. He says, men of Israel, and then he's warming to the crowd in verse 29. He calls them brothers. Look, he says, I'm one among you, but I have something I need to say. So listen to me now. Please notice that Peter doesn't seem to hesitate. You know, people are saying all this commotion that's going on. Well, that indicates these people must be drunk. And that's where Peter begins. It is important, he says, for you to understand what's happening in your streets right now. He wants to make the point that a world-altering moment has just taken place, and it's so important not to miss this moment. And here we see at the outset the purpose of his sermon. Sermons, when they're good ones, really do help us see the world from the perspective of God's revelation. For every preacher knows how easy it is for people to go through life never understood what God was saying. I mean, how tragic it would be to stand at the brink of a new era and remain in the dark. So, Peter begins to preach. So, let's read the first part of his sermon, verses 15 to 21. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. At the very outset, please notice that Peter responds to the question of what is happening. He says, it's not drunkenness. It's the third hour since sunrise. It's way too early to hit the bars now. Instead, what you're seeing corresponds with what the prophet Joel said over 800 years ago, something that you've been taught about and something you've spent your lives anxiously awaiting for. It's happening right now. Open your eyes and see it. See, it's important for us to see that all the New Testament sermons follow a very, what will become, if we look at them carefully, a familiar style. The sermons all center on Jesus, but they also all center on Scripture. The New Testament preachers always show Jesus in the light of the Bible— or in the light of the Old Testament. See, from their perspective, anytime you preach Jesus, you have to do it in the light of the word of God. And I make mention of that here because as many of us know in our day, there are those who in their confusion say, look, we worship Jesus, we don't worship the Bible, we're Jesus-centered, not Bible-centered. So this attempt to make a dichotomy between Jesus and the Bible is completely contrary to the very beginnings of the Christian faith. All the preachers said the same thing. Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture and scripture tells us who the real Jesus is. That's where all good preaching takes its root system. It's a Christian sermon if it reads scripture and explains scripture. Remember the Christian faith is is a faith that's grounded in the word. Now, of course, something new has happened. Jesus died and rose again. But if you're going to understand that, says Peter, you're going to need to get out your Bible.
0: These are challenging days. Many, some our neighbors, family, friends find themselves in difficulty they would not have imagined only a few months ago. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something or somewhere to place our confidence. And for many, that means a considered rediscovery of their faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. I know for Back to the Bible, these days have provided a stark reminder of the need, privilege, and opportunity to represent Jesus Christ through the teaching of the Bible. In short, it's reinforced for us the need to keep showing up to remain faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching, we wanna be there. Your continued support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada is essential. God's people across Canada recognizing the times and responding with the truth of God's word. To discover more about Back to the Bible Canada or to offer a gift to support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Peter has begun by explaining that the phenomenon of the coming of the Holy Spirit is not the result of drunkenness, but rather, in the words of Peter, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes from the book of Joel, or to be specific, from Joel chapter 3, verses 28 to 32. It's it's an interesting quote because, you know, Peter believes that the words of Joel are now being fulfilled, and that might strike us as somewhat odd. I mean, after all, the quote begins with the words, in the last days. That would mean that Peter thinks that these words are now being fulfilled in what is presently, that is, at the time of Pentecost, this marks the beginning of the last days. You know, we've heard of many preachers who speak about the end times, and then they speak with a conviction, you know, we're now living in the end times, that is, you know, in the last 30 years or so. But according to Peter, we've been living in the end times since Pentecost, now for us in the last 2,000 years. Now then, how does Peter understand the prophecy of Joel? Well, now every Jew in Jerusalem of that day would have understood the context of the book of Joel. Now, these were Bible literate people, Joel's prophecy was probably given around 835 B.C., and during those days, there had been a locust plague that had ravished the crops, leaving the land of Israel at the point of famine and starvation. It was severe. The situation had become desperate. And in the light of those events, Joel spoke of the experience of the grasshopper plague as as a symbol, or as a tremor, if you will, or as a foreshadowing of a much greater coming event, and that event was the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was understood as the day at the end of the ages. God would establish his eternal kingdom. He would then destroy evil, and he would reward and save the righteous. And furthermore, God would do this through his chosen or anointed one, or his Messiah. In Peter's thinking, the coming of Jesus really did bring about the beginning of the day of the Lord when Jesus came and preached and healed and ordered nature to do his will. The demons were fleeing, the the dead were rising, the blind were seeing, and the lame were walking. I mean, what was all of that? Was it not that the day of the Lord had already broken in to this present hour? God was beginning to bless his people. And so, using Joel's prophecy... Peter notes how Joel had said that in the day of the Lord, your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. You know, what Joel was speaking about is how when the kingdom of God arrived, that this hour would indeed be the hour of the Holy Spirit who would come upon all of God's people, and then all of God's people would prophesy. And indeed, there are a number of ways of understanding prophesying. One is to predict the future, and that clearly didn't happen at Pentecost. I mean, another is to deliver a message from God. But another definition of prophesying is to engage in spirit-directed adoration and praise of God. You know, for instance, 1 Chronicles 25, verses 2 and 3 speaks of the sons of Asaph who prophesied under the direction of the king. Well, what exactly did they do? Well, it says they prophesied with a lyre, which was a musical instrument, in thanksgiving and praise to God. Well, says Peter, this gift of tongues, or when you heard these 120 who were baptized with the Holy Spirit, I mean, not just a few, but every one of them, you heard them speaking in your own languages, and they were declaring the mighty acts of God, which is a fulfillment of the hope of the end of the days when all God's people will prophesy. You know, Peter might have also quoted from, you know, Numbers chapter 11, you know, when two men in the camp of Israel began to prophesy because the Holy Spirit, it says, came upon them. Well, back then, Joshua reported that to Moses, and he says, look, Moses, we've got to stop this kind of activity from going on. But verse 29 says, but Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all God's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That is, I wish... That all of Israel had the Spirit of God and that, in consequence, they would all prophesy. Yeah, indeed. Wouldn't that be great? Well, that was what Joel was talking about and says, Peter, on this day of Pentecost, what you've just seen is that, something that's never happened before. And if you doubt it, well, then explain to me how all these people who had never learned these languages, and in many cases, they never even heard them spoken before are now prophesying in your own languages isn't God giving you the evidence that the prophecy of Joel is being fulfilled right now in front of you but of course Peter is not done with his quote from Joel and at this moment it gets you know it gets a little bit tricky to understand what Peter had in mind you know, it strikes me as quite possible that Luke you know who quotes Peter's sermon might only have given us the Cole's notes version or the abridged version of the sermon Peter may have explained it all, but we are left with only a bare outline, but I need to say that bare outline is a very, very good outline. See, in his sermon, Peter keeps on quoting Joel. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Well, how was that fulfilled? I mean, after all, Joel is speaking about wonders in heaven, and there he speaks about the sun turning to darkness. Well... Just two months earlier, in that very city when Jesus died on the cross, what had happened? I mean, Luke, who records this historical event, said the sun turned dark for three hours. Well, now, what about those signs on the earth below, this blood and fire and vapor of smoke? I mean, how did that happen? Well, again, we're left to wonder how Peter might have applied this. I mean, perhaps he understood these words to have been done figuratively. I mean, the blood and fire on earth are an excellent symbol to describe the events of the passion, you know, from the illegal trials to the mocking of Jesus, to to the whipping of him, to making him drag his cross through the streets of Jerusalem, and then to crucifying him as the venom of hatred poured out of the lungs of the crucifiers. It's like blood and fire. But Peter will leave that part that they have conspired together to kill the Lord's Messiah, and therefore they are worthy of damnation. He's going to leave that to the end of the sermon. But for now, he keeps on quoting. He also says that during these last days, Joel has pointed out, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And with that, Peter, the man who just 50 days earlier had denied that he ever knew Jesus, the the man who was afraid to make his stance, especially when it would cost him his life. Now we see the spirit-filled and anointed Peter standing before some of the very same people who less than two months earlier had shouted until their throats almost gave out, crucify him. And so here's Peter standing in front of these same people and he says, didn't you recognize what was going on? The day of the Lord was at hand and blood and fire was springing from your souls and yet in marvelous mercy, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord might still be saved. And then like any good preacher, Peter now begins to make application, verses 22 to 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it." Yeah. The first Christian sermon is just now warming up. Men of Israel, Peter calls out, you saw Jesus. You are witnesses of his mighty works. You know the signs that he did that signs, that witness to you that this man truly was the long-expected Messiah that our Bible spoke of. Ah, They could almost guess where the preacher is going. You knew he was your Messiah, but in blind rage, you nailed him to the cross. Ah, Now, Peter is going to get to that, but he's not there, not quite yet. No, he wants them to know that Jesus went to the cross because of the foreordained or the because of the predestined will of God, or he says, by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God determined that his Messiah would suffer and be put to death by men who were stained in sin. Yeah, the lawless ones. But that's not the end of the story. Just 50 days ago, God raised him from the dead. And so, with all the mighty signs he had done, All those were just the warm-up. This, this is the resurrection from the dead. This is the grand final act. This is the mightiest sign of all. Yeah, said the preacher. Joel told you it would be like this, and look what's happening. It's happening right in front of your eyes. All those Bible lessons you learned in Sunday school, or, well, in their case, it was Sabbath school, right up to the present, they have been fulfilled. And here you are. You're standing at the greatest threshold in history. Now that's preaching, all right. Suddenly the preacher has told them what they couldn't understand apart from the word. But there's something in this for us. Jesus has been crucified and raised from the dead. Great and mighty works are done, and we're standing at the precipice of the greatest moment in history. My brother and sister, do you understand? or Are you in the dark like some of the men in Jerusalem? Oh, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus has been sent, and
0: this indeed is the new era. Thanks so much, John. Uh, Can you help me understand one thing, though? The reference to last days. Help me get a better understanding of what's being said there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the last days, I mean, sometimes in, you know, in our generation, we talk about the last days, like, are we within like 20 years or whatever it is of the Lord's return? I mean, the Bible never talks that kind of language. The last days are the days in which the kingdom of God has been activated through Jesus, even though... Uh, we recognize that ultimately it has not been consummated, but it has already come in the present form. So uh, when we talk about the last days, now that Christ has died for our sins, and now that the Holy Spirit has come, since that time, we're in the last
0: days. That's great. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Jesus Goes Global right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Carissa wrote to say thank you Dr. John Newfeld, for consistently providing deeply meaningful and theologically rich Bible teaching. I have particularly appreciated the new video series. It is encouraging to my spirit to hear words of truth and hope through his teaching. Thank you for continuing your work of faithfully proclaiming God's Word. We've been so grateful to introduce Back to the Bible Canada's new weekly video Bible teaching series. Each week, Dr. Neufeld searches deeply into God's Word, seeking truth for living a life that glorifies God. All of these programs can be viewed online or by subscribing to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information about every ministry resource or to support this ministry financially, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.